Tonight's reading will be from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1 to 17. That can be found on page 691 of your church Bibles. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rizim of Aham, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest were shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Jezahab, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son Tibil king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place, it will not happen, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings will dread will be laid to waste. The Lord will bring on him on you and on your people and on the house of your father, a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. As Rob mentioned at the start, we are in the season of Advent. We start in the season of Advent. I wonder what Advent means for you. Um, Growing up, Advent, I think pretty much solely for me, Advent meant Advent calendars. That's what Advent was all about for me. And really, the calendar just counted down to Christmas. So I've heard the rebuke from my uh, rector that Advent calendars shouldn't be counted down to Christmas, but looking forward uh, to the second coming of Jesus. But for me, that's what Advent was all about. Get your Advent calendar and just count down, hopefully getting quicker, feels like it's taking for ages, until you get to Christmas Day. As Rob said, Advent literally means coming or arrival. It's a time to help us prepare for what's coming. And specifically, preparing for the coming of Jesus. Yes, sort of looking forward to the coming of Jesus at Christmas. But more significantly, looking forward to the coming of Jesus at the end of time. The second coming of Jesus. And so over these next two Sundays, this evening and next week, we're going to do just that. We're going to to slow down a bit 
and not rush into the mode of Christmas, which for some of you might be great news, for others of you, you might just want to get on with Christmas. And we're going to think about these coming, the coming of Jesus. We're going to help ourselves prepare well for the coming of Jesus. And we've sort of done that in the room, as if the observant of you might have noticed, there's a few Christmas decorations that are already up. Um, I'd love to say that the decorations are up, but the lights aren't on to try and slow us down and get ready for Christmas. I think it's more that we're not sure where all the switches are for the lights to turn them on. And there's a lot of candles here and the Christmas trees haven't arrived yet. But it's quite a nice illustration to go, look, we're getting there. Some of the decorations are up, but let's not go too quickly. Let's take this season of Advent to slow down and to prepare for what is coming. Let us help one another to wait well, to prepare well. And to do that, we're going into the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And we're looking at two passages, Isaiah 7 this evening, Isaiah 9 next week. Two passages that I wonder for most of us will be familiar and yet unfamiliar. Familiar and yet unfamiliar. What I mean by this is there'll be sections of both passages, which when you hear them read out, you'll think, yeah, I've definitely heard that before. And so verse 14 of our passage this evening, I'm sure you would have heard pretty much every single Christmas and next week, familiar parts of chapter 9. And yet unfamiliar, because I wonder how many of us know what went on when those words were first uttered. What was going on behind the scenes when those words were mentioned for the very first time? And so my hope is that as we get into Isaiah 7 this week, Isaiah 9 next week, my hope is that it's not just kind of helpful as we look at these famous words, but in the context of when they were first said. But more than just helpful, I hope they will breathe new life into these words that might be familiar to us, that we hear every Christian, every Christmas. I hope they give a, an almost fresh meaning to see them in their original context and to see how that adds to what we hear when we hear them at Christmas. And not just Christmas, but help us as we wait for the coming of Jesus at the end of time. So Isaiah chapter 7 this evening, uh, the familiar part, did you recognize the part of the reading in verse 14, which we hear uh, in Matthew chapter 1, when Matthew quotes it as the angel appears to Joseph, and Matthew says this in Matthew chapter 1, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here's these words that Matthew quotes from. And so we're going to dive into Isaiah 7 to see what's going on when these words were first uttered. And see what that can mean for us as we look forward to the coming of Christmas. But more than that, we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Two things we're going to look at as we work through our passage. First, we're going to see the call to trust. And then second, we're going to see a sign to hold on to. So let's go first then. A call to trust, verses 1 to 9. A call to trust. Let me read verse 1 to us. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. 
I don't know about you, but as I read that, that is a lot of names. And I'd love to be able to say to you that when I first read this, I looked at that and gone, yep, yep, him, okay, yep, and, and yep, there, there, yep, yep, know what's going on there. I, I had to take the time and read it over and over again to work out who's that and what's that talking about. And so, um, maybe this is the worst thing you want on a Sunday evening, but let's have a quick kind of history and geography uh, review of what's going on at the time, where we are and what's going on, so that we're clear on who's being spoken about and where we are in the land. So um, Isaiah is speaking around 700 years before Jesus came. And nearly 200 years before Isaiah so 900 years before Jesus, the nation, the country of Israel split in two. And so here we have, if you can see it, um, here is the historic country of Israel. And 900 years, 200 years before Isaiah, 900 years before Jesus, the country has a civil war and splits in two. And so you have the southern part, which is then renamed Judah, and you have the northern part, which is called Israel. Or in our passage, it's also called Ephraim or Ephraim. And then north of Israel here, you have Syria, also called Aram. So when in our passage we see um, Ahaz, king of Judah, we're talking about this southern part, Judah, which has the capital city of Jerusalem, which is where Isaiah is speaking from. And when we see Ephraim, that's also known as Israel, which has the capital city of Samaria, And where we see Aram, that's Syria, which has the capital city of Damascus. So that's where we are and what's going on. And at this time, the the superpower of the day, the big player on the world scene, is a region called Assyria, which is to the northeast of Israel and Judah. And they are growing, and they're looking to expand. And so if you can see here, here is the region of Assyria... And as the red arrows show, they're expanding outwards. And they, here down here is Judah and Israel and Syria, and they are coming down southwest, isn't that? Never eat shredded wheat. Southwest, isn't it? Um, So they're coming down here um, and heading towards Syria and Israel and Judah. And so the other countries in the region that are threatened by them have two options. The first option is to kind of pay tribute to Assyria, to respect them, to acknowledge them, and hope that therefore they'll kind of leave them alone and let them be. Or the other option is to stand up to them. And this is what, uh, this is what Ephraim and Aram are trying to do. They think, Assyria, we don't want you to come and take over. We're going to stand up to you. And they want Judah to join them. And so they put pressure on Judah to to come and join them. And verse 6, we see their plot that they threaten to invade, to tear it apart, to divide it among ourselves, and effectively put a puppet king in place to make them join forces with them. And the result is that Judah is terrified, verse 2. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. And in his terror, Ahaz's plot, Ahaz's tactic, is to get Assyria involved for help. To reach out to this superpower to help them to avoid the threat, the immediate threat of Ephraim and Aram. 
And do you see the folly in that tactic of going for the superpower? One person put it to me like this. It's like Judah is the mouse that's getting attacked by two rats. And so the response of the mouse is to ask the cat to scare off the rats. Without thinking that once the cat has dealt with the rats, surely it will look at the mouse and just go, there's pudding. And yet, that is the tactic of Ahaz, to think Assyria will help us out. King Ahaz finds himself in a complete crisis, in the middle of a tough situation. And I realize in a room like this, we will all have faced tough times. We'll all have faced pressure situations. Maybe that's you right now, and you just can't see how tomorrow is going to go. That might be big situations, that might be small situations, and yet when we're in the middle of a small, so-called small situation, it never feels small at the time. And in the midst of tough time, in the midst of crises, they reveal our hearts, they reveal what matters to us, they reveal what we turn to and we put our trust and security in. And this crisis reveals King Ahaz's heart. And so the response of God in verse 3 is to call Isaiah to go out and meet King Ahaz. And don't go alone. Did you notice that? He says, take your son with him. Why would God want Isaiah to take along his son with him? Well, there's significance in his son's name, Sheer Jashub. In fact, his son is effectively a walking, talking visual aid, a talk illustration, if you like. So often in the Bible, names mean something. Names are significant. And this is no different. If you look to the footnote at the bottom of your Bibles, you'll see that Sheer Jashub means a remnant will return. Just a chapter earlier in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is commissioned by God to go as a prophet to the nation of Judah. And the message he is to take is a gloomy message. It's a message of destruction. It's bad news. And Isaiah effectively says, is there any good news in it? And at the end of chapter 6, God tells Isaiah that there is a hint of good news. There is a remnant that will return. And so Isaiah's son, Sheer Jashub, is the walking visual aid to go, look, destruction is coming, judgment is coming, but a remnant will return. There is hope. And so as Isaiah gets to Ahaz, he comes out with his message in verse 4, and it's a call to trust. Have a look, verse 4. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, do not lose hearts because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. It's almost the Old Testament equivalent of the famous keep calm and carry on poster. Trust in the Lord, and it will be okay. So easy in a crisis not to think clearly. And so Isaiah calls on King Ahaz to be careful, to keep calm, to not be afraid. In fact, he says, look, they're just smoldering stubs of firewood. They're just a, a match that is just going out. They're no threat. And so in verses 5 to 6, Isaiah is called to say, this is what they will say. This is what they will threaten to do. And yet what is important is not what they will say, but what the Lord says. What the Lord plans to do. Verse 7. 
Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. He's effectively saying, look, look, look at the countries that are threatening you. And sure, in the country of Aram, the capital city is Damascus. And in Damascus, the head of Damascus, well, it's only resin. It's, 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 only, it's only a mere man. And it's the same in Ephraim as well. And implicitly, this should make King Ahaz think about his own situation and look, look in the mirror and go, who are we? Well, we're Judah, and the head of Judah is the capital city of Jerusalem. And the head of Jerusalem, well, well, that's where I live as king, but greater than just me as a mere man. Jerusalem is the city of God. It's where God dwells. Instead of worrying about Ephraim and Aram, trust in the Lord. And so the final call at the end of verse 9 is to stand firm. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. God is longing for Ahaz to trust him. Ahaz doesn't need to be worried, afraid, or ally himself with Assyria. He needs to have faith that the Lord will look after his people rather than looking elsewhere for protection and salvation. And so it's a challenge for us in those moments of crisis, in those moments of vulnerabilities, in those moments where we don't know what will happen next. Who will we trust? So often we can be tempted to put our trust in in humans or in human things, those things that are tangible that I can see and touch and know is there. Or will we put our trust in the sovereign Lord? the maker of the heavens and the earth, the one who holds the whole world in his hands. So those words of verse 4 are a call to us. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. Stand firm. First we see a call to trust. And yet the question can be, how are we to stand firm? How can we keep trusting? And so second, we see a sign to hold on to, a sign to hold on to. So often in the Old Testament, when you get prophecies or promises, they're accompanied by a sign to to almost prove the worth of that prophecy or promise. And so in verse 11, it's no surprise that a sign is asked for. And and at first reading, verse 12 can, can almost seem like quite a mature response from King Ahaz. He quotes scripture from Deuteronomy 6 to not put the Lord your God to the test. But actually, rather than quoting the Bible, Ahaz here is misquoting the Bible. He's misusing the Bible. Ahaz is offered a sign and yet rejects it. And in the context of Deuteronomy 6, when we're called to not put the Lord your God to the test, it's the context of, of almost demanding a sign from God so we can trust him. To say, look God, I'll I'll only trust in you if you do this for me. But here it's the other way around. God is making the promise and saying, ask for a sign so I can prove to you that you can trust my word. And yet Ahaz doesn't want to know. He doesn't want to know because his mind is already made up. 
He's saying, I, I don't want you to convince me anymore. I'm going to look elsewhere. I'm going to put my trust and my security in other things. Maybe for us, as, as long as the bank balance is secure, that's where I'm going to put my trust. Or that career that I really want and the steps I need to go through, the exams and grades and qualifications that I need to get to that career, that will be, give me my security. Or as long as I work towards um, getting on the property ladder, that will be my safe investment that will provide security. And look, with all those things, they're, they're not wrong in and of themselves. But the danger is we can put them ahead of God. The danger is that we put our trust and our security in, in things rather than God who gives us all things. And in those moments, God comes with a warning. And so Isaiah responds to Ahaz's lack of faith in asking for a sign by giving him a sign. Verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. There's the lovely verse we hear each Christmas from Matthew chapter 1. And it is a sign that is wonderfully encouraging, wonderfully reassuring, wonderfully comforting. God will be with you. God is with us. What more could you want? And yet when we go back to Isaiah chapter 7 and see that promise made, that sign shown in its original context, we see that that sign comes with almost a double-edged meaning. There is wonderful encouragement. But King Ahaz isn't hearing that and thinking, oh, Christmas is coming, I can't wait, all will be well. No, along with the encouragement, there is a warning, a challenge for those who don't trust in the Lord. I wonder if you notice the slight difference in verse 11 and verse uh, 13 as Isaiah refers to God and Ahaz in verse 11. He said, he calls uh, God, ask the Lord, your God, Ahaz. And yet by verse 13, it's changed to, will you try the patience of my God also? Isaiah almost recognizes that Ahaz is distancing himself and, and the, the Lord is no longer his God. And so if he is no longer his God, the coming of this Emmanuel is not a welcome thing. And we saw the, the things that Isaiah speaks of that will accompany the sign, that will confirm the sign. Verse 16, whilst the child is still young, God will defeat Ephraim and Aram. And that is good news. But it's not all good news. Because verse 17, God will also judge Judah. It says Assyria will come, but not to your rescue, but to attack and so as we hear the sign, the promise in verse 14, it is natural to ask maybe two closely related questions. Firstly, who is this child? And secondly, when is the, are these things going to happen? Earlier in the year in September, when we did a kind of mini-series in Isaiah, uh, Rob helped us to think about how we can understand these promises or prophecies or signs in the Old Testament. And he helped us think about them as a series of mountain peaks. 
And so there is the initial mountain peak, the first mountain peak, almost a, a, a partial fulfillment of the promise, as you see here. That happens in Isaiah's day. And so if we were to read on into chapter 8, there, there's mention of another son to Isaiah. And if we were to read Isaiah chapter 8, it's hard to read it and ignore a kind of connection between this son and the son that's mentioned in chapter 7. For example, the same language is used in 8 verse 4 about before the boy knows how to say, before the boy knows enough. But there's connection. But there's not a total fulfillment. There's not a total fullness of the promise. But there's a connection enough to see that that as the promise said, it was only a few years later that Aram was destroyed. It was only ten years after that that Ephraim was destroyed. And yet we know from how Matthew uses it that that's not the total fulfillment of it. Matthew shows us that there is another mountain peak to come, a greater mountain peak that shows its scene in the fulfillment in Jesus. That the ultimate fulfillment is seen in the coming of a son to a virgin. The coming of a baby boy who is God with us. Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 7 shows us that this is a a double-edged promise. It's a challenge to those who are not trusting. When Emmanuel came that first Christmas, he, he came to challenge those who did not trust in him. He came to challenge those who who just dismissed him, who heard his words and wanted nothing to do with him, who wanted to put their trust and security in other things. Maybe that's you this evening. You've heard some of the things that Jesus says, but you're just not convinced that you still look to other maybe tangible things that you want to hold on to to put your trust and security in. Or maybe that's someone you know And so this Christmas is a wonderful opportunity for them to meet Emmanuel, God with us, to put their trust in him. It's a challenge for us to keep on trusting, a call to not turn your back on God, to not put your trust in other things like Ahaz does. These things will not save you. Here is Emmanuel, God with us. It helps us to prepare for Christmas, to look back at that first coming of Jesus. And so for all who trust in him, it brings a wonderful comfort and reassurance in the midst of tough times. How does it, how does it do that? How does that promise mean that for us when the little boy who grew up into a man is now lo- no longer walking on this earth? Because he made the promise that his Holy Spirit will be with every single person who trusts in him. And so that he can be trusted, that he is with us, and that he sustains us. And it helps us look forward to that second coming of Jesus. To a time where there will be no more suffering, no more trials, no more pain. A time where we will be with God face to face. Where we will see the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. God with us, us with God forever. What a wonderful time that will be. Let me pray for us. 
Father God, thank you for these events in Isaiah chapter 7. The promise of a child to come who will be called Emmanuel. God with us. And for the challenge and encouragement that that gives us to trust in you and to keep trusting in you. Help us to do that this Advent time into Christmas and beyond all the way to when Jesus comes again. To keep on trusting knowing that you are Emmanuel, God with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, To think about these couple of questions, thank you for sending them in. Uh, The first is uh, perhaps a bit more technical. The change from verse 14 to 15, uh, which he is being referred to in verse 15, Jesus or Shir Jasub? Yeah, good question. I think... um, Running from 14 to 15, the he is this um, immediate son. So not Shir Jasher, because that is um, Isaiah's son who has already come, if you like. Um, but is thinking about that more immediate partial fulfillment of this promise in the more immediate short term. And so making that link to Isaiah chapter 8 and a new son for Isaiah in chapter 8. So not Shir Jasher, that's a different son who's already come, but is the... Um, the partial fulfilment seen in this new son who comes um, potentially in, yeah, in Isaiah chapter 8. So do you want to help us out with this again? Because I think a lot of people, me included, will look at that and think, I'm, I'm lost here because he seems to be making a promise to a son. You're saying there's another son, Jesus. Yeah, what's going on? Yeah, and I think, um, I, I think the mountain ranges is really helpful to think of a, a partial and a complete fulfillment of promises made from the Old Testament. And so the partial is in the more immediate short term, if you like, that these messages, prophecies, were given to Isaiah, to the people for that time. And so we see them fulfilled impartial, uh, partially at the time. And yet point forward to, as Matthew shows, um, a greater fulfillment to come. And so you see a partial fulfillment in the immediate, the short term of a son that you see in Isaiah chapter 8 and the events that happen as a result. So the events of um, verse 17, verse 16 and 17, that the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. That is fulfilled in um, the next 10 years. And that Assyria comes for Judah. That is fulfilled. And yet, as Matthew quotes Isaiah... There is a greater fulfillment in Jesus as he arrives 700 years later, that he is the ultimate fulfillment of Emmanuel, God with us. Does that help at all? That does help. So I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, I think you're saying we just need to have that mountain range idea or whatever is helpful. As we read in the the Old Testament, actually we're looking through multiple potential fulfillments, but everything's in Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's important to hold the two in tension because the danger if you hold um, the small mountain, if you make the small mountain too big, you, you put so much emphasis in the Old Testament and you miss the significance of the coming of Jesus. But the danger of making it too small and making the big mountain too big is that you miss that, that this was spoken to Isaiah to be spoken to a people at a specific time in a specific place and it really meant something to them. It wasn't Isaiah say this and go, oh, but by, by the way, don't worry, it's going to be fulfilled in 700 years' time, so just don't worry about it. 
this was spoken to Isaiah at a specific time, in a specific place, for a specific time. And yet we see how the promises Isaiah makes, the prophecies Isaiah makes, meet their complete full fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ. And, and it is, I think, that holding in, holding in balance the two mountains as we see uh, prophecies to Isaiah come true in Isaiah's day and yet totally fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ fulfills those promises. Yeah. Which is great, isn't it? Because we can look back to what's happened and see how God's worked trusting that he'll do the same mm-hmm. with Jesus yeah, yeah. great um, let's uh, go on to this second question uh, so this person asks so presumably we would now um, never ask for a sign anymore to prove God's promise to us as this has been given as Jesus getting frustrated in Mark's with the Pharisees this generation is for asking for one um, I think um uh, I, I don't God can work however he wants and so if he wants to give us a sign he can give us a sign. Um, but at the same time, see that, as mentioned, so often in the Old Testament, God's uh, promises accompany God's sign, and God's sign accompany God's promises. And, and therefore, I wouldn't expect God to make new promises today that are different from what's written in Scripture. And so if God isn't going to make new promises today, I wouldn't expect to see new signs. God can do whatever he wants. But we've seen the promises that God makes in Scripture and won't add to it. And we've seen, if you like, the ultimate sign in the coming of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did in dying on the cross and rising again. And so I'd almost want to say to anyone who wants another sign, whether Christian who wants a sign to say, how can I trust in you? Or an unbeliever going, well, I want to see him in action, prove it. Can I go, well, we've had a pretty good sign of a human being who died and yet rose again to prove that he's not just a human being but that he is God with us defeating death forever that is a pretty good sign for me and hopefully it is for for you and I and for friends as well we're finished there thank you thank you very much